0: You're listening to The Player's Podcast, brought to you by International Rugby Players.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Player's Podcast. I'm on the queue and on today's show, we hear from the man in charge of the men in the middle, World Rugby Referees boss, Alain Roland. With Rugby World Cup 2019 on the horizon, it's a massive year for the game. And that means it's a big year for the match officials. Which means it's a busy year for Elaine and his team. A former player himself, the Irishman knows all about making decisions at the highest levels after taking charge of a Rugby World Cup final and three European Cup finals, among other big games. I met Alain Roland at World Rugby headquarters and started by asking him, how did he get into refereeing?
0: Look, it was an accident. <laughs> really? It was purely by accident. Um, I, I was down in Strathbrook. I was down in Strathbrook on a Sunday afternoon to watch the seconds play. We'd, I, I played a game, you know, the day before with, with Rock. Um, the seconds were playing a, a competitive match. And I was down to watch it. And Rory O'Connor, who was the manager, team manager of Lansdown, approached me. Um, and said to me Look Rollers Could you do me a huge favour Like we've we, We've no ref The ref has He hasn't showed up um, Would you come down could, Is there any chance You could just I don't know why he picked me But he said would you, would, you, would you mind Coming down And just And you never Referee the never. For- never even thought about it and Honestly Never even It was never even a uh, It was never even a blip On the radar Sure um, So I said to him But I said What do I know You know Um but he said, look, we've got everybody here. I said, we're we're here to play, you know, the the league game. It's difficult to get the guys all the time. Um, I think it was a third A's kind of league game. Um, and I said to him, I said, well, look, it's a league match. I said, we don't care. We just, we need someone to ref it. The fact that we're all here. So listen, I I had a kit. I always carried a bag of kit in my car, always. Don't know why, but I always did. Um and i said to him well, if you can get a whistle i said if you, i need a watch i need a whistle if you can find me a watch and a whistle well then i'll i'll go down and i'll give it a bash uh i went down and i ref the game and and like during the game it was it was kind of man, yeah, it, was, it was actually it was okay i mean the players were but i was letting them play like i was a yeah. player yeah. refing yeah you know i probably let things go and you know, l- low application wouldn't necessarily be in top of the priority, you know, but you had a fair idea of what was required Yeah, um, from your playing background. And so I was doing this and, you know, coincidentally, the performance reviewer who was watching the ref and doing the seconds game on the top pitch took a wander down at half time and he kind of saw me doing what I was doing. And he had a conversation with me afterwards and I said, no, not interested. But he fed back into Doyler, owned Doyle, who was the referee manager at the time, he then got in contact with me I said no not interested because uh, I was still playing Yeah. Um, and then he, I met him he asked me to meet him and I went and I met him there on Shelburne Road and he said will you try a couple of games you know just for, you know for the rest of the season just see what it's like so I said okay you know because I was playing you know with, with Rock and then every second, third or maybe fourth Sunday I'd just do a, a run around and the more I did it the more I kind of got to kind of enjoy it and he got me thinking about what could be you know having had a successful career on the playing side that there was maybe an opportunity to to progress in the, in the refereeing side, and that's kind of how it actually started.
1: So, did he kind of um, wow you with the promises of international refereeing and World Cup finals and um, Lions tours and all that kind of stuff, or did he just think <laughs> this is something to keep you fit when you're not playing?
0: Well, look, he, he, there was never an issue around fitness, but it was a way could, to try and stay involved in the game. And, and the thing about it is, a couple of clubs that approached me from a coaching perspective, you know, and they were kind of thinking, uh, I was going to. I had thoughts of maybe going down the coaching route, right. you know, because I enjoyed that. I was, I involved, I enjoyed being involved with the squad and kind of sharing experiences and getting teams to work together. I, I've always enjoyed that. I've taken up a lot of, I was captain of a number of teams as as, as a as a player. Um, rumors had it I was a half decent captain. You know, leadership qualities were seemed to be kind of okay. So. I kind of felt maybe I could put that into a coaching structure um, and work with um and do some coaching courses and kind of go from there. Yeah. But then when I got thinking about it, I was thinking, well, you know, I was still young, like I was only 32, and I was thinking, the game was turning professional and I wasn't going to give up my job. So Leinster wanted me to sign a full-time contract the following season, and I said, no, I wasn't going to do that. Um, you were be- working in the... I was finan- working I yeah. was in financial services. Sure, You know, I had a good job. Uh, and I wasn't keen on giving up my job. I'd, I'd set up a you know pretty good career for myself, and I was only going to get maybe at best maybe a year. It might be lucky to get a two-year contract at age thirty-two, um, but I, and that wasn't something I was interested in. So when you put all of that together, um, that's I, I, I seriously thought about the, the refereeing as to what it might look like, what commitment was required. Um, but you could still be kind of involved in the game. You were still on the pitch. You were still part and parcel of it, and that was the, the thing that appealed to me the most.
1: Uh, well, you went on, go on a couple of years. Um, you refereed your first international match in 2001, and then you went on to referee a Rugby World Cup final. When you look back now, what were the standout matches of your career?
0: Um, I'll always remember the first game, my first All-Ireland League game you know Division 3 was out in Setonians the weather was freezing 80% of matches had been called off because of the weather Uh, except my game was one that wasn't and when I came out to do my game there was more um, assessors and committee members at the game than there actually was spectators because truthfully they were probably there to see me fall on my arse because (laughs) um, Owen Doyle got a huge amount of flack for in my first season that I get to do an all Ireland league game. Okay, my division three, but still an all Ireland league. It was unheard of. Okay. And he very much had the, the the view that if you're you know, if you're old enough, you're good enough. You know, um you didn't have to go through four or five years down in the lower ranks and you work your way up. He'd put in um a new model within the IRFU um that would allow potential referees to be fast-tracked into a system if they felt that they were they were good enough to do it. So here I was, you know, a wet week in the in the job out in Suetonians, um, and the game went really, really well and I was only I think at that point that a lot of people kind of maybe realized, well, actually maybe he might be half decent. They never agreed to it, but there was a few more open minds you know as a result of that uh, so
1: you obviously got confidence from that performance and the kind of you're breaking down the barriers well, from see, that one small uh, the match. thing was
0: everybody was waiting for the train crash like everybody was waiting for me to have a train crash they said oh it's coming it's coming give him, give him another game it's coming he's going to he's going to mess up somewhere along the line um, but it, it didn't you know thankfully it, it didn't I mean I had a very good rapport with the players um, I had no problem getting around the park I had good empathy with them they enjoyed when I was doing it um, Victor Costello used to hate when I reffed because he knew we would be playing lots of advantage so he'd see me coming into the changing room and he'd go, oh, Jesus Rollers, please can you blow your whistle a little bit today? And so he, <laughs> a you could have a bit of banter and I knew, I knew a lot of the guys initially I was that I was refing had played with so um, I didn't have that who's your man, what does he know there was a, there was a, a, a bit of I suppose, respect initially because I was with a lot of my peers um, and then once they could see that I, I was giving it a decent crack, well, then they weren't really trying to, to challenge me too much um, and they just got on and, and they played and, and we had a lot of good games and so I always remember them. So,
1: On the international front, um, would you say so maybe like the World Cup final uh, 2007 or... Uh, yeah. some Heineken Cup European Championship just yeah, were where the standouts?
0: Yeah, I mean I was, I, I was very lucky I mean I've refereed three Heineken Cup finals a referee, the World Cup final you know you're talking Tri-Nations at the time then Rugby Championship, Six Nations there, you know, there's some amazing games that are in there of course the Rugby World Cup final is going to stand out because it's the pinnacle any referee who referees wants to referee a World Cup final you know it's just like any player when you're playing with a team you want to go to a world cup and then when you get to a world cup you want to you, you dream about actually winning a world cup final it's a it's a very exclusive club so so it is the 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 biggest game that I would have refereed but there are a number of other games that would would match that and or maybe even surpass that you know
1: those big tri nations or six nations games or or obviously rugby world cup matches y- you seem like a calm character a kind of stoic individual did you I can't imagine you getting nervous before big matches like that
0: nah, no no you, you don't get nervous and I think from a, having a playing background probably helped that yeah you know between the 15s and the 7s you're playing in front of big crowds you know getting in front of 40,000 50,000 wasn't, wasn't new mm-hmm. um, so you didn't you, know, you weren't kind of put out by that um, having experienced it as a player um, I think the more you look forward to it so you, get, you get excited there's the butterflies in the stomach um, there are certain nerves, but they're more nerves of excitement rather than I'm planking it. I, 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 I you know, I don't want to go out there. You're dying to get out there. But like once you cross the whitewash, then you get into you're in game mode, um, and you just you just got to trust your instincts.
1: There's one controversial game that sticks out when your name is mentioned, especially in Wales. It always gets a reaction, and that was the 2011 uh, World Cup semi-final. Wales and France, where Sam Warburton got a red card. What was your memories of that day and that, and that match in particular?
0: Well, look, you know, I, I dealt with, we, we we discussed this, you know, before the World Cup in, in our referees group meetings about, you know, it was it was topical. It was something that we needed to kind of have a, a structure, a plan around. And so it was, when I saw the action was put to me, I didn't even hesitate. You know, I just, I went... And, and issued the card, you know, straight away. I caught everybody by the hop because nobody even knew that it was... I'd actually given the red because I did it so fast. Yeah, it wasn't um, seen on the screens at, no, at the time. it wasn't. And uh, and then, like, decisions made. You know, I still have... It's on the 17th minute of the game. I still have, you know, the rest of the match to, uh, to work my way through. Um, and there's another decision coming. So it didn't affect me... It didn't affect me... Um, it didn't affect me uh, during the course of the the rest of the match um there was actually a worse decision that uh, there was actually a decision that I made towards the end of the game where I gave a penalty to Wales an incorrect penalty to Wales that if they'd have kicked um could have won the game yeah um but i misread I actually misread the breakdown area and i and i I, I thought I saw. A player that was offside and the player wasn't offside. So for me, what sticks out from that game was actually the penalty kick a game at the end, that if it had gone over, um, it would have been an incorrect decision by myself. So that's what sticks out for me in that game, not necessarily the uh, the red card I gave against uh, against Sam.
1: A year before that, New Zealand boss Graham Henry said, Elaine Roland is the best referee in the world. He's got a great feel for the game. He's a player's referee. In other words, players like playing under him because he's got that feel. Is it a blessing or a curse to be or a curse to be uh, prayed? I paid him. I paid him to say <laughs> yeah. that. You know, I, I, I slipped him a brown <laughs> envelope and said, Here Graham, S- you do me a favor? Say um, something nice about me, please. Look, is it a blessing yeah, it, or
0: a curse? It's look, it's neither. You know, like it's t- to come from somebody like Graham, it's it's a massive compliment given his achievements and you know who, you know, the fact that he was coaching um the all blacks um at the time. Um it, it's it's nice for him to say, but uh, you could have he could be saying something the opposite the following week and unfortunately that's that's our that's our game Um, you will make a decision where a lot of people will love you for it Mm -hmm. and just as many people won't and and that's just a fact of life you cannot keep everybody happy you're not in it to keep everybody happy because you you just can't so um, when it comes to things that are said in the media a lot of the time you know I don't I never did social media I still don't do social media I never as a player And as a a ref, I never really paid much attention to what was written in the media, good or bad. Okay. You're going to hear about it anyway. So if it's bad news, you'll hear about it. If it's good news, you might hear about it at some point. And it's got to be water off a duck's back. Yeah, it's just part and parcel what we do.
1: When does a referee know when it's time to call it a day? Is it a fitness thing? Is it uh, the speed of decision-making? Or do you just get a tap on the shoulder and say, you've done a great job, now it's time to hang up the boots?
0: Um... Ideally, you want to have one of the first two options rather than the third. Um, I probably was one of the first refs to actually get out on my own terms. Uh-huh. Um, the other guys probably would have liked to have gone on a little bit longer, yet they got cut from squads or they didn't get selected. And sometimes that can be quite difficult then to actually take. You might still think that you're good enough, um, and then if you don't make the cut, well, there can be resentment, you know, or, or whatever from that. So a couple of the guys before me were probably in that boat. But for me, there's, it's a combination of a couple of things. We'll have a number of retirements after this World Cup, for example, you know, a number of the guys will know that for the next, cause now we're in, working in four year cycles. Sure. A couple of the lads will know that I'm not going to be around in, you know, 2023. Um, so they'll they'll make the decision themselves. Um, a couple of them have already flagged it. So, from my own point of view, it was the it was the same. So I was kind of, kind of caught between where I was working, what I was doing from a work point of view. I had plans of, kind of getting out of financial services, setting up something for myself, um, going down a different career path, taking a bit of a chance, setting up something of my own consultancy firm, and I did that. Um, but for me to do that to do that properly, I couldn't still be involved in in the refereeing and. I'd always said I wanted to get out on my own terms. I, I think I caught a lot of people by surprise because I could have gone to 2015. I was in the shape to go to 2015. That wouldn't have been any problem. Um, but I had a vision about what I wanted to do. And if I had gone to 2015, well then I may not necessarily been able to do what I did. So between family, between work, um, and for the sake of well, maybe a year or two, uh, I decided to, you know, to, to, to leave. Uh, and to, to to follow different interests and, and thankfully I'm still involved in the game.
1: So that brings us on to the present where you're now um referee's manager for the 15s game you took over from Joel Jute um here at World Rugby in Dublin in around 2016. What was the attraction of of the current role Rodders?
0: Initially it wasn't any. Uh, because uh, you know there's so much pressure. N- no, nothing to do with that. I mean it, like when when the, the decision was made when when joel decided after 2015 that he wasn't going to go uh, to continue on um i had been successful in setting up my consultancy company i had some very good contract i had a good contract with the, one of the um, six nations unions um, i was about to sign a contract you know a training contract with um, one of the asian countries to help, I was doing, I was contracted to World Rugby. I was working with the tier two teams. Mm-hmm. I was loving what I was doing. Like it was, and I was working for myself. Um, so I was initially, yeah, you know, I, I knew, th- y- you know that there's a lot of pressure on the job. It wasn't that, that wasn't the reason that I wasn't kind of putting my name in into the hat from the very, from the get-go, because I was very satisfied with what, and the I put in a huge amount of work to get, s- what I had set up, set up, you know, it took me over a year, year and a half, you know, of hard working and networking and everything to to get to where I actually was. Yeah, and now of I was course. Kind of looking, is after going through all of that, am I gonna stop and go back in and, and work for an organisation where I've just spent 17 years working for my last organisation? So, so there's a lot of things that were actually kind of going on. But then, to be fair to you know Mark, um, who is the head of the competitions and performance area here within World Rugby. Mark Egan. Yeah, yeah we, we, we had a good discussion. We had a frank discussion. We had an open discussion. We laid everything out on the table and he did get me to think about a couple of things. And um, I looked kind of more long-term then. I looked long-term about some kind of stability within kind of a job, um, being able to do a bit more planning then around spending time, family. Having so there was a couple of things that kind of came into play. Um, and like, there's no question that to, to have the job as as referee man, it's a massive role. And that excited me too, you know, like it did excite me um, to be in, to be given that kind of a responsibility, so in, so.
1: in a way, the challenge comes from, you're a bit like an international coach. You only get the guys every so often. You don't manage them every weekend. You don't get to see their games in Wales or South Africa or Australia or Argentina or wherever it is, uh, bar you monitor on TV. But you don't get the group together an awful lot, so is that the biggest challenge you face in in terms of getting that consistency from from your referees?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is difficult because you know we we only get them four times a year, but that said, um, I've good relationships with the referee managers of the uh, of the unions where with dialogue with them and being able to keep in touch with them. And to be able to monitor how their guys are actually doing, um, you can still kind of work around that. the The group is changes in size depending on the type of the time of year as well. You know, if you go back to last November, we between the men's and women's we had sixty games that needed match officials. So we were really stretching, you know, our resources to their to their optimum. We had a very big group in 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 the Lensbury to try and have everybody on the same page and while it's it's good, it's also causes challenges where you've got such a big group it's sometimes difficult to get the message across and for everybody to kind of get to stay involved so in this Six nations tournament we've twenty seven match officials involved so um and we get together every every Monday after the games uh, and it'll allow us then when you're working with a smaller group we can we can hopefully gets more consistency in our approach but when you get into world cup environment you're now living with the team for all those weeks so you would expect with the same guys working with the same guys on an ongoing basis you've got games on an ongoing you know every every other day um so you've got 40 games in your in the pool matches in the first whatever three three and a half weeks so there's a lot kind of going on and you're working and you've got the same group and you can give feedback on the run and so you would You'd imagine we're, what we're now starting to do is we'll we'll pick our group of match officials at the end of the Six Nations, and then that squad will spend a bit of time together in July, and then that squad will be doing all the games in the warm-up games in in, in kind of August yeah. and the Six Rugby Championship games and there's other games that are around that. So it's about kind of building that consistency with the with the squad up to when we arrive in September.
1: How difficult is it for you and World Rugby to kind of put your hands up and say? this referee got it wrong. And I suppose I'm referring to an incident where you weren't with World Rugby at the time, but it was during Rugby World Cup 2015 where Craig Joubert made a decision, uh, wasn't the right call, World Rugby issued a statement to say he erred in law um, and it felt like he was being, quote unquote, thrown under the bus. When you get a coach onto you saying that, you know, this was the wrong call or, you know, the media are are banging on the door saying, why didn't you give a penalty here or why did you give a red card here, whatever it is, how do you deal with that?
0: Well, we would... How I deal with it is I would talk to the coach. You know, like, we're not... Referees are being asked to make decisions on, a, on an ongoing basis and they're going to make mistakes and they're not necessarily going to get it right all the time. Um, and we would never admit to the fact that they can't make a mistake. But it's very unforgiving. You know, players are allowed to make a mistake, but referees are not allowed to make a mistake. So um, if if it's clear that... Um, you know, a referee, as part of the review process, what we do is um, I would have communication with the coaches. Coach will send in looking for clarification around certain things. Or during the Six Nations, I'm sending them timelines, you know, uh, after the game, just in, as to what we feel. Here's a couple of things that you need to make your players aware of actions that could have been uh, the actions of your players that could have been actioned upon by the by the match officials Um, and in that way you're trying to give clarity around some of the decisions that are there so like if a coach asks me a question and says you know did he get it right or wrong I'm happy to answer it you know because it's it's important that that is the case but if a journalist asks me it's I'm not necessarily feel that it's appropriate for me to have certain conversations that I'm quite happy to do with uh, w- w- with some coaches. Um, sometimes the referees aren't wrong because the law allows them to make a decision for for one or two. So you can you can give this decision or this decision. Um, but in last year's Six Nations, there was an incorrect call on the on the TMO for for grounding. It was a, it, it was running, a black yeah. and white decision. Yeah. It was a black and white decision. So um, I was on to you know um, the coach the on the Sunday saying, look there was an incorrect decision on, on that front Um and uh, so happy to, happy to be able to do that and
1: generally are the coaches okay once you explain that they got it wrong you hold your hands up and that errors are made referees are human too
0: yeah I mean oh look it's a very high high pressurised environment you know coaches are results driven, just like we are, we're we're results driven. Like we have to be good in our in our performances. We can't be given decisions that are costing games on an ongoing basis because then it uh, it just doesn't work that way. But every now and again, you know, that is going to be the case. And while while a coach might be happy to hear it, it's still an error. And we still obviously can't go back in time and, and actually change it. Um but if a if a coach asks a question there are, there are times where we'll have to agree to disagree. Um, there are times when a coach might feel that a certain action should have been actioned upon, and we as, as a group of match officials will go, actually, no, that's not how we actually see it. So there are going to be times where we won't actually seek agreement, or we, we will seek agreement, but we might not actually end up by agreeing on something, so we'll have to agree to disagree. But that's an opinion. You have two differences of opinions. Yeah. Um, but there are a number of occasions where I would go, yeah, you're right, we did get that actually wrong uh, and you have to be able to do that
1: you mentioned the TMO decision from the Wales England game last year in the Six Nations Um, there were certain um, changes made to the implementation of the TMO for the Novembers are you happy that the referees now have this common sense approach that I think fans and players would like them to see don't overuse it but use it when necessary
0: yeah I mean like the TMO is a safety net so the fact that it's there there's a probability that it would be used a little bit more often than not if they were to work without one um but having given them the the responsibility particularly around try times to give on-field decisions um with an explanation as to what they're looking for with an opportunity to, to describe what they're looking for as to why not to give it mm-hmm. um will keep hopefully the the public more engaged and understand be able to follow the the actual process itself so um we were being criticized for allowing the tmo to make too many decisions rather than the than the referee and what yeah. we've tried to do is we've tried to give that and i think we've successfully given that power back to the referees because now they're controlling you know pretty much everything that happens um with the assistant of the of the tmo um and that's something that we will continue to to work on so the referees drive the conversations and drive the decisions um, the rest of the guys are there of his team to, to, to assist when when uh, when necessary.
1: When I spoke to a few players last week and said I was going to be chatting to you, they said, ask him about the tackles in the air. <laughs> and one of the case studies brought up was Benjamin Fahl, Bowden Barrett um, in June of 2018. Red card um, for a collision where Bowden Barrett was in the air, um, was later rescinded what was your feeling on that i and i don't want to talk to you too much about particular case examples but i think th- there was so many calls for clarity around the tackles in the air from that particular incident what was your take on it and have we got that clarity since
0: yeah i think i think there's, there has been clarity around and there is clar- clarity around the, the whole challenge in the air because a lot of the players do understand that if you if they put themselves in that position that there can be a risk involved so we've we've always said that when it comes to if you're asking about that specific incident what came about afterwards was a tv angle that was available made available um to judiciary that we didn't actually have as as part of the match official team on the day we've always said that if there's a mitigating factor around why something happens, it can bring, you know, a colour of a card down from red to yellow, or it can bring a yellow to a PK, or it can bring a PK maybe to a play on. So um there was a mitigating factor in that particular um action um uh, because of the interference of his line of running, which we saw from the from the reverse angle. So the TMO um and the and the match officials on the day didn't couldn't clearly get that uh, footage. So what they dealt with, from the footage that they were given, um, they were correct in dealing with it because you had a player who wasn't in a realistic position when he was competing for the ball and you had a player who came down very dangerously. Mm -hmm. And that guideline is still the same. You know, we have to adjudicate in any act of foul play, the first question we have to ask, are we dealing with foul play? How we get to that will determine for the challenge in the air, are they both in a realistic position to gather the ball? And if we ask, if we can answer yes to that, well, then no matter what happens after that, there is no foul play. Okay. So even if a player comes down, you know, really awkwardly or dangerously, and he gets injured and he's and he's he's stretchered off, but we've asked the question: Were both those players in a realistic position to to regather that ball? And if we can hand and heart kind of go yes, they were both in a position at that point in time to regather, well, then there's nothing else to see here. Okay. And that's the, the the critical part of that part of the game that that's the first part we've got to ask. Are they both in a realistic position, yes or no? If we answer yes, play on yeah. If we answer no, well then we've got to look at okay, is it a timing issue or are we are we dealing with something more severe and that's how we uh, get to the outcomes
1: okay uh, you mentioned about collaboration and you mentioned earlier about working the 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 team of three I suppose as a unit would you like to see more of that in the game in general not just in the international game that you manage but in the game in general especially around the offside line and the AR is working more with the referee on the pitch to help him or her see more
0: Yeah, well, look, we're, I'm currently challenging the, the the teams of match officials during the Six Nations to see if we can give specific duties can we clarify a role at a particular area a particular breakdown or scrum or line out where you know, the referee's responsible for one area. The referee's responsible for everything, but he can get assistance from his from his touch judges. And so w- depending on whether you're with them on the close side or if you're the far away, you could do specific things. And we're 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 kinda looking at um trying to help the teams, you know, to work better together by identifying right at the you know, line out, this is your three main roles, you know, and for the Far T jail, this is your main role. And if we can follow them it allows us then when we do our reviews and if we see something well then we knew who was responsible and then it'll help us to try and to kind of to get those things so in the ideal world um during a world cup you'd have the same group working all the way through but because we have so many teams um having to have neutrality it's very difficult to be able to do that um because you can't you would not be able to get through all the pool games with the same things yeah, because that makes sense, they're yeah. going to be coming up with, against their own countries a lot yeah. of the time so um, but again, as I said, we've got, we'll have 12 refs and 7 Aors, and that group of 19 will be working you know, uh, quite closely through, uh, throughout all the games.
1: Finally, Rollers, and it's been great to chat to you, the standard of refereeing by and large in 2015 was very good. Um, have you Are you happy that we 'll see the same standards in in Rugby World Cup two thousand and nineteen where more and more fans and, and and players will be be watching probably more so than ever
0: yeah look it 's going to be uh, an amazing occasion there 's no question about that, and we as referees want to facilitate the game we don 't want to be the ones that are deciding on outcomes and um, we want to be there to to facilitate the game everybody 's coming to watch rugby yeah you know but there is responsibilities on us but there's also responsibilities on players and coaches. Because if a team decides to play a certain way that forces us to make decisions, well, then you're going to get more decisions having to be made. Um, everybody wants to see two teams to be positive to go out and to play because when we are put in the middle of that type of game, it's more enjoyment for absolutely everybody. And we do only have to make the decisions on, on, on what actually matters then. Um, and that's the the critical thing so it's not it can't be our problem but sometimes we're asked to solve the problem but the reason that we've been asked to solve the problem is because of what has been put in front of us on a a given day Um, and if you have a team acting negatively uh, you've got a team pushing things to the limit illegally well then what it means is that you're forcing us to kind of get involved in something that we don't want to so if they don't force us to get involved, well, then everybody's a winner. So it's a, it's a collaborative, um, uh, I suppose, event that it's not just about us. It's about how the players want to play.
1: Mr. Orlando, thank you very much.
0: Pleasure, as always.
1: You're listening to The Players Podcast. Log on to rugbyplayers.org. Well, my thanks to Elaine for speaking to us with the year that's in it. He's certainly a very busy man, but it's important that players and fans hear what he has to say as the man that manages the match officials, women's and men. You've been listening to the players podcast, I'm on McHugh, and you can follow us on social media at international rugby players, or indeed visit rugbyplayers.org for more from all our podcasts and interviews, and to find out more about the work we do. That's it for now. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.